Well, if you have a Bible with you, you can take it and find the book of 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, as we are drawing to the close of one letter to the Thessalonian church, and next week we will begin the next. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and we're going to be looking at the, the final six verses here. First Thessalonians chapter 5, beginning in verse 23. First Thessalonians 5, beginning in verse 23. Paul writes this to conclude the letter. He says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Paul is going to end this letter with uh, one of the very words he began the letter, and that is the word grace. And I remember when I played uh, on my my high school in in basketball teams, and uh, those were the good old days when I had a properly functioning right knee, that practice always started and ended the same way. And if you've been on any sports team, it's the same for all sports. But in basketball, practice always started with conditioning. And I was sprinting, what coach would call down and backs, or ladders, there's a lot of different names. But basically you're sprinting down the court and back the court, either long ways or short ways, either uh, divided up in four ways there, you know, and just, you're just sprinting back and forth. And then the practice would end the same way it started, with more conditioning and more sprints of down and back, down and back, down and back. And in between the two conditioning times, this is when all the the basketball drills and the scrimmages and different things were, were packed in. Because in order for the basketball drills to be effective in the game, we needed to have the stamina to carry it out, and that's what the conditioning was for. Well, In the same way, and it's worth being one of the first points we address about this passage, is that the Apostle Paul, as he concludes 1 Thessalonians, is, as we just mentioned, concluding the same way he started. And that's with the word grace. And packed in between the beginning grace and the ending grace is Paul's unpacking of of many different doctrines that are important to us, many different commands and implications that he gives And he's starting and ending his letter with grace because everything in between these two words is dependent on God's grace. God's grace, you could say, gives us the spiritual stamina to live out the spirit of this letter and to run the race that God has set before us. And so this As he looks back at the letter he wrote, and Paul often does this in his letters, he does, uh, in in all of his letters, he starts with grace and he he bids them some sort of farewell with the grace or the peace of the Lord Jesus. And and he's really looking at this and saying, if this this church, this young, newly, uh, a new church full of new converts is going to carry out what God expects of them, they're going to need a whole lot of grace. And the same is true for us today. And so we're going to get right into what Paul is talking about here as we try to 
try to organize uh, what Paul is saying. We're going to look at the, the, the three ways God reveals his grace in the church, and we're going to include a necessary response on our behalf as well. So three ways that God reveals his grace in the church, and then our necessary response as well. Number one, as we just go right into this, number one is one of, God's, God, one of the ways God reveals his grace in the church is through Christian growth. We did change the sides a little bit. I know some people are saying they're kind of hard to see. We've got some, we got some projector work to do, so kind of change the sides. Hopefully this helps a little bit. Uh, but three ways God reveals his grace in the church in our response. And the first one is found in verse 23 and 24, and that is Christian growth. And our response should be to pursue godliness. Now I want you to, to, to focus and see and look at the words that Paul is writing. When he concludes the letter, he uses the word now. So he's saying, okay. Now the big wrap-up, the big conclusion of everything going on, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. So he's talking about sanctification, and that's, that's, a, that's a big word. If you're not familiar with that word, that's okay. Uh, the word sanctify means to set apart, uh, to set apart for holy use when it comes to the way our God uses it. And so I want to look at uh, a couple things about sanctification that these verses give us. First, I want to look at the who and the what of sanctification. Who does it and what is it? Now, Paul is referring to the God of peace. Now, Paul is referring to God as the God of peace. It's because you can't be sanctified if you don't have peace with God. You can't be sanctified by God if you're his enemy. He is the one who brings us peace and is at peace with us through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, through our faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he is the one, according to this this verse, he's the one who initiates, sustains, and even empowers our, our progressive walk in Jesus Christ. So again, that word sanctify means to set apart. And the Bible gives us three different aspects of sanctification that, I, uh, that I'm just going to give at the outset here, and then we're just going to focus on the one he's talking about here. But there's a positional sanctification that takes place at conversion. And so this is what Hebrews chapter 10 refers to in verse 10, where he says, We have all been sanctified through, notice have been, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. This is a positional sanctification. This happens at the moment of conversion where you, through your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, are set apart for God. Ephesians 2 talks about that. We've been, we've been made for good works. We're set apart. And so that's a positional sanctification, but there's also a, what I would call a practical, or maybe you're familiar with the word progressive sanctification. And this is what's being talked about here, and in verses like 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, where Paul says, And we all, with unveiled face, we be beholding the glory of the Lord. What are we doing? We're being transformed into that very same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So what's this verse talking about? This verse is talking about that when we behold the glory of the Lord, we place our faith in Jesus, we are, we are subsequently more and more transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. And this is what kind of plays out in day-to-day life. And so this is what we call practical or progressive sanctification. We'll, we'll touch on that here in just a minute. But finally... As the, uh, as the last one we'll, we'll see on the, on the screen here is Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, because there's also a perfect sanctification, which this verse actually alludes to as well, but it's, it's a future sanctification, where it talks about, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to 
completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So there's going to be a, a completion to our walk with God, a completion to our holiness. But the sanctification that we're talking about this morning, and although it's referred to in some ways in verse 23, what Paul is talking about here in this passage and what we're going to talk about this morning is that progressive sanctification. A definition of progressive sanctification is this, or this practical sanctification, the sanctification that plays out in life. It's the lifelong work of God and man where we sin less and less and conform more and more to the image of Jesus Christ. Progressive sanctification defined is the lifelong work of God and man where we sin less and less and conform more and more to the image of Jesus Christ. This is the day-to-day sort of thing. Okay, this is, this is God's goal for you in day-to-day life. It's for you, it's this lifelong work of God and man where we sin less and less and we conform more and more to the image of Jesus Christ. That's a lot to take in right off the bat. But as we think about this progressive sanctification, notice there it's defined as a lifelong work or it's a lifelong process. And that can be frustrating I mean, when it comes to how we view our sanctification, if, and if you've been around the church for a while, that word sanctification, you probably know what it means. It just means us becoming more like Jesus Christ. If you don't know that big word, again, the idea behind it is we're becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. And, and as we look at our Christian life, it's often frustrating, isn't it? We look at ourselves and we think, man, I am not measuring up to the standard that God has set. I feel like my, my, my life is just plagued with sin and poor attitudes and, and fights and bickering and complaining and whining. And it can just get frustrating. And we can look at how we're growing to be more like Jesus Christ and and we can be frustrated and confused. We can be discouraged and we can be irritated. And we can even have trouble making sense of our own heart. But I think one of the things that helps us as we go through this life and we face the frustrations of realizing that we just come up so short when it comes to being holy And the more you grow to be like Christ, the more you realize just how far you have to go. One of the great things about this passage is that he calls God the God of peace. He's not a God of chaos and confusion. So as much as we look at our life and we're we're just, all we see is the chaos and the confusion and we're frustrated and we're irritated and we can't make sense of what's wrong in our hearts. We can't make sense of what's going on. He's the God of peace. That is to say, God is not in chaos over your sanctification. When God looks at you, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, and you've placed your faith in Jesus alone for salvation, when God looks at you, he's not, he's not in chaos over what's going on in your heart. He's not confused. He's not frustrated. He's not irritated. He's not in heaven thinking, oh my goodness, what am I going to do with this mess? We looked at Philippians 1.6 already. I mean, Paul said with confidence, I am sure of this. And notice what it says in verse 24. He will surely do it. Paul was sure that for the follower of Jesus Christ, that he, that's God, who began a good work in us, is going to bring it to completion at the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. We can be confident that he who began a good work in us, that beginning of the work, there's the positional sanctification. He will carry it on. There's the progressive sanctification to completion. There's the perfect sanctification. 
Now he's praying that God does this. May the God of peace himself, may God himself do this. May he sanctify you completely. So he's asking God, because from start to finish, your Christian life is primarily a work of God. And here's, here's one of the biggest, here's one of the, the, the things, one of the biggest frustrations, uh, one of the things that will cause the biggest problem in your Christian life is when you try to do this on your own, apart from the work of God. Because the Bible's clear, sanctification from start to finish is primarily a work of God. Now, this, I'm, not, I'm not up here saying that this is one of those, you've heard the phrase, let go and let God sort of thing. That, that's, not, that's not at all what I'm saying, nor is it what this passage is teaching. Because we do have verses like Romans 8.13 that tell us we are to put to death the deeds of the body. Uh, the section right before this, Paul gets done talking about how all of us, we need to be uh, patient with people and don't repay evil for evil. You know, we need to do things in our Christian life. But in order to be sanctified, we need the sanctifying work of God. So that's the, that's the who and the what. Let's look at the where of, the san- of sanctification. So the who and the what is, is God is, is, is himself is doing the sanctifying. He's working in us to want to will and to do his good work. And he is setting us apart. He's making us more like Jesus. And where is all this taking place? Notice at the end of verse 23. He says, may your whole spirit and soul and body. Okay, the whole, the whole, there's this whole person. He's saying, may God sanctify you completely. May your sanctification happen to be through and through. May God sanctify you in such a way that no part is left out. That's, what's, that's what he's saying here. That no part is left untouched. That no part is lacking in holiness. Now that's God's plan. God's plan is for your total sanctification. And that should be our ambition. And so Paul lists off what he means. He says our whole spirit, our soul, our body. Okay, there's two parts to every person. The material, that's our body. The immaterial, that's our soul or our spirit. And Paul is praying that everything we are, all of our desires, all the the, the stuff down deep, the desires, the attitudes, the motives, the stuff we do with our bodies, our actions, our words, where we go, what we look at, what we listen to, every part of our bodies, every part of our being would be sanctified. No part left untouched. Paul is praying that everything they are would be blameless. Now let's think about this practically. There's not one part of your life that God looks at and says, you know, I'm not really too worried about whether or not that's sanctified. And this, here's the problem, because I think, I think this is one of Satan's strategies against believers. Because there's, there's a lie that we believe that's, that, that we want to believe in our flesh, but I think Satan also whispers to us. And, is that, and here's what it is. If we're struggling with any sort of sin, whether it be an attitude, an addiction, an action, a motive, a desire, whatever, what, what, what we're tempted to think is, well, that's just how I'm wired. You know, after all, I'm a sinner, and, you know, I can't, I'm never going to have victory over this thing. And, and one of the things that, that we can be tempted to believe is that God doesn't really, God, God understands. He understands your sin. He understands all these things. He doesn't really care. He's just going to kind of leave that off limits and focus on everything else. But here we realize that, that what, what Paul is saying and what God is telling us 
is that this verse reminds us that nothing is outside of God's agenda for our sanctification. Nothing is outside of God's agenda for our sanctification. And there's great freedom in realizing that God wants to sanctify everything. Because it's so discouraging when you, if, if, if you come to believe the lie that you're, you as a Christian, it's just time to give up fighting that sin. It's time to, I mean, I mean, how, I mean my goodness, how many times are you going to have to repent of that one sin? How many times are you going to have to confess that one sin to God? And it's just, it's so discouraging if, if we come to the conclusion of just, it's over. This verse reminds us that nothing is outside of God's agenda. And nothing is outside of his reach. And nothing is outside of his grace and his power and his mercy. Our thoughts, our desires, our sexuality, our finances, our relationships, our words, our actions, everything is in scope here. Now I want you to notice the when of sanctification. We got the who, the what, the where. Now look at the when. We looked at this in even Philippians 1. Where he talks about he's going to carry it on until. And that's what it says, the same idea here. Soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus. So here's, here's the win of your sanctification. And again, this is, this is also freeing. Because God is not expecting you to be a fully sanctified Christian as you sit here this morning. God is not saying that if you are not 100%, like Paul Tripp would say, a graduate of God's grace, and you no longer need his grace, that's not at all what God expects. God expects us to rely on his grace each and every single day. And the win of sanctification is from conversion to coffin. From the time we are born again to the time we die or the Lord Jesus returns. That's where all this takes place. So if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you will always, there will always be more work to do on you. And Paul looks ahead with assurance that when Jesus returns, all the Christians, they will stand before him as blameless. Even though you know, we're not very blameless here on earth. That is, we sin while on earth. And here's the reason why we can have such confidence. Here's why you as a Christian, if you've got a sin weighing you down, or if you've just decided that I've just got to give up and give in to all my sin because there's no hope anyways, God is telling you something different. He's, one, he's telling you, Christian, that you are going to make it. You are going to stand before the Lord Jesus as blameless at the day of Christ. And the reason why we can have such confidence and hope at the coming of our Lord Jesus is because every imperfection and every sin was covered and forgiven by Jesus who died for you. And so until then, by God's grace, we pursue blamelessness, we pursue godliness. But it won't be realized until we enter glory. And notice what this all relies on. Verse 24. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. So Paul's just kind of bringing us back to this God of to the God of peace. Now he's like, God is faithful. He's faithful to you. He'll accomplish his work in you. We have such confidence. Our God is faithful. What he says he will do, what he starts, he will finish. 
And this is true of every single believer in Jesus Christ. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, this is true of you. Every single one. Every single one. God, every single child, God will be faithful to you. He will keep you on the road of sanctification and see to it that you stand complete and blameless at the the coming of the Lord Jesus. I know we spent a long time on this first point, but it's important to understand because this is where so much confusion and frustration comes. It's because we don't really understand what God is doing in our lives. I want to show you, it'll be on the screen here, I want to show you a, a kind of a graph of what sanctification looks like. And I apologize if it's kind of blurry or hard to see. But here's, here's the main idea. That very bottom box there is when we're unconverted, we're not a Christian. And you notice there, we're just kind of living life, but we're still, we're still headed for hell. We're not right with God. And then that first little spike up into that middle row is conversion. It's when we place our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that is what our sanctification looks like. That's what our day-to-day looks like. If you notice there, our growing in holiness. You know, we kind of go up. And then kind of come down, and then we go up and down, up and down, up and down, but, but all the while we're going up. I've heard it referred to, it's, it's like, a, like a yo-yo on an escalator, right? Our lives are like a yo-yo on an escalator. We keep going up and down, up and down, but all the while, while the escalator is taking us up. And that's the Christian life. It's this yo-yo of holiness and sin, holiness and sin, all the while becoming more and more looking like Jesus Christ. And then the day we die. And then that's that top uh, kind of shaded out uh, one there. That's, that's where we enter into glory. And then we are perfectly holy because of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you take that top little strip and you try to fit it in the middle one, your Christian life will make no sense at all. Your fight against sin will have no power at all. Because if you take that top one and you say, I've got to attain perfect holiness in this life, you've completely missed the point of what God wants to do. And what God says is real of all of us and true of all of us. We can't emphasize the importance of knowing what this Christian life should look like. It's it's full of ups and downs of holiness and sin, mixed in with confession and repentance, trusting in the Lord Jesus, returning to the gospel day after day after day, growing in holiness until the day we die when we enjoy perfect holiness forever. God is going to do this for us. God the Father will discipline us to make us more like Jesus. God the Son, Jesus Christ himself, he, he earned our sanctification as we read earlier, and he is our example. God the Holy Spirit does the actual change within us and produces godly fruit that we read about in Galatians 5. And all this work just takes place in just day-to-day life. There's no shortcuts. I sat down with, a, with, a, with a, my, my professor at Faith Baptist Bible College. He was in charge of, I, I, I minored in, in counseling at, at Faith and, and, uh, for part of my degree. And I sat down with him just frustrated with the Christian life. And, and all, the, all this, you know, just the, the gross stuff and the bad stuff and the, and the wicked stuff and all the, the, you know, I just felt like I should be more mature. I just wasn't sure and... And one of the things he reminded me of, he goes, God didn't make any shortcuts, and he's not going to make an exception with you. There's no shortcuts in this. There's no shortcuts from going kind of that middle section where the number two has it, just straight to perfect holiness. We've all got to go through this. And it just happens through just the, the, the normal stuff that we are most tempted to neglect. Reading the Bible, meditating on God's word, 
praying in full dependence and neediness on God, fellowshipping with other believers, regularly confessing and repenting of sin, looking to the gospel, savoring the gospel, practicing self-control. There's just no shortcuts, no hurry-ups in this. It's that day-to-day, that day-to-day discipline, a lifelong experience of God's constant and abiding grace that causes us to be more like Jesus Christ. And you attempt sanctification without God's grace, and you're really trying to attempt to be God. So we have to pursue godliness. Let's move on to the next point. We won't spend as long in the next two as as on that one, but we need to continue on. As we look, one of the ways God shows his grace is, is Christian growth, and we need to pursue godliness. Another way he shows his grace to us is through Christian fellowship. And we need to pursue friendliness. Notice these uh, next two verses, verse 25 and 26, as we talk about Christian fellowship. He says, brothers, pray for us, verse 25. And then verse 26, greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. Now let's start with the prayer side of things. Now prayer, it's an important part of Christian fellowship. He's addressing his brothers and sisters in Christ, and Paul is asking them to pray for him. And that's what a Christian family should do. Okay, when he says, brothers, pray for us, uh, in the Greek, the idea there is brothers and sisters, the family, the family that he has, the church family he has in Thessalonica, he wanted them to pray for him. That's what a Christian family should do. They should pray for each other. They should be united. They should be with each other. And I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself because we'll talk about that when it comes to greeting. But Paul is asking them to pray for each other. Now, he had already set forth the gospel command. Pastor Matt preached on this a couple weeks ago, that we should pray without ceasing. And now he's asking that they include him in their prayers. And I I think this means a couple things. Number one, I think one of the keys to the success of missions is prayer. One of the keys to the success of missions is prayer. Paul Paul had a whole army of churches around him praying for his mission. And I think Paul understood and would even acknowledge that the success of his mission had a large part, and the key to that success was largely due to the arming of churches praying for him. And we have a lot of missionaries that we support and that we should be praying for, and I encourage you to pray for them. As a matter of fact, missionaries, and we have, we have a handful every year, and you know, when missionaries come, they often bring little prayer cards, or they set out like a little, uh, little sign-up where you can put your email address and stay in touch with them, and throughout the year, they'll send out emails on, on how you can pray for them. Listen, if you don't receive any of our missionary letters, I encourage you to sign up for them when they come and they visit whenever their furlough time allows. We're already in the works to set up a few missionaries that we support to come in. If you don't regularly pray for them, you don't get their letters and pray for them, I encourage you to do so. Find a way to pray for them because their success, a key to their success largely depends on people praying for them and a work that God can do through the praying of churches for missions But here's another thing I think this shows us is that one of the keys to enduring trials is the prayer of saints for one another. One of the keys to the success of missions is prayer, and one of the keys to enduring trials is the prayer of the saints for one another. I mean, Paul is asking for prayer. This shows that Paul endured plenty of difficulties and trials. And in all those difficulties and troubles, he wanted the prayers of the saints. So Christian fellowship, pursue friendliness. One is praying. You can be a, that's a great way to be a friend, is to pray for people. Secondly, notice what he says. He says, greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. Now, don't let that holy kiss scare you. 
We'll, we'll get to that and understand what it means. But greet one another, greet all the brothers, all the brothers and sisters. Greet the whole church with a holy kiss. Every Christian should be a greeter. Every Christian should be a greeter. The word means to welcome, to give a friendly greeting. It's used in several other passages in the New Testament uh, that even command, I think six or seven different uh, times Paul commands this sort of thing. In Romans 16, it's used, Romans chapter 16, it's used 21 times, the command to greet. And Paul there is saying, greet this person for me, greet this person for me, greet this person for me. But the whole church should be made up of greeters. You know, greeters isn't a church ministry just for someone to stand at the door and, and open the doors. As important as that is, and I'm thankful for those who serve so faithfully to open doors for people and greet them with that kind of that first greet as they come in. But every single one of you should be greeters. It's an important part of Christian fellowship. If sanctification is God's work in us, then this fellowship is, is one way the grace of God works through us to others. You're shaking somebody's hand, greeting them in the Lord, welcoming them to church is a great way to show the grace of God. And just to note here, Paul assumed that they'd be meeting together on the Lord's Day. Notice he says, greet all the brothers. Paul just assumed that there was going to be a day where the, that, that whole local family of believers would come together. And it's just a natural part of new life in Christ. Paul didn't spend too much time in his letters telling people, you need to go to church, or you should be at church. It was just a natural part of new life, of this new community. A Christian without being a part of the fellowship of a local church was foreign to Paul. Now, as it concerns greeting... Everyone was supposed to greet everyone when they came together as a church to worship on the Lord's Day. Now, notice how he says to greet. Here he says to greet one another with a holy kiss. Don't let that alarm you. But as you, I'm, I'm sure, know that in that culture, ancient cultures, and in many cultures today, greetings include a kiss on the cheek or the forehead. It's not scandalous, but it's that culture's way to signify honor and friendship. And so the church in Thessalonica would have naturally done what the social custom was. And their way of, of showing friendship and honor and welcoming people was to, was to give a kiss. Now in our culture, the socially acceptable greeting pending COVID protocols, the socially acceptable greeting is normally a handshake. In some places, if you go to the south, it's a hug. But we're in Iowa, it's a handshake. Or a side hug. That's the social norm. And so I don't, think, I don't think we're disobeying the Lord by not greeting each other with, with a holy kiss. I think the idea there is we're supposed to be uh, welcoming and greeting one another with whatever social norm it is where it won't freak people out. But to neglect this, to neglect the practice of giving an honorable or a friendly greeting was to dishonor the Lord. We have an example of this in Luke chapter 7. If you remember Luke chapter 7, Jesus was invited over to Simon the Pharisee's house. And in the middle of that meal, uh, a woman who was known in the community as, as, a, as a great sinner, she came in and starts anointing the feet of Jesus and weeping at his feet. You remember, the, the Pharisee Simon was his name. He says, man, if this, if this Jesus were a prophet, he would have known what sort of woman this is and who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And I want you to look at how Jesus replied to him. 
Uh, This is Luke chapter 7, verse 40, and then verses 44 through 47. He says, Simon, I have something to say to you. Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave no water for my feet. She has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me, notice this, you gave me no kiss. You didn't welcome me. You didn't honor me. You gave me no greeting. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. Realize what Jesus is saying there. Simon, yeah, you had me over to your house for dinner. You may have had something you wanted to talk about. But you gave me no kiss of welcome. No, no kiss of honor. And this religious guy didn't even give a proper welcome to the Lord Jesus. He certainly wasn't going to greet this outsider. And I just want to say, if you're, if you're a guest or you're new to the church, we don't expect you to be the ones up and around. Although that's acceptable, of course. If that's your personality, you're certainly welcome to do that. But if you're a brother or sister in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you're a member of the church, how are you doing greeting people? How are you doing greeting those who are here on Sunday morning? Not just the people you're real close friends with, but all the brothers. He's not just telling them, hey, go greet your biological family or your close friends. He's telling them to greet those. Remember, he, he just, he's had a whole letter so far. And he's mentioned a lot of different kind of things that weren't so right in the church. There is tension in the church. And all these different things. And he's saying, hey, you all go, 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 go welcome each other. Greet the ones you have tension. Where there's tension between the two of you. Greet them. Greet the ones who are part of your church. Greet the ones who are with you on a Sunday morning. Greet those with whom you differ. Greet those when it comes to differences in social class or upbringing. The church was, in that time, embraced all social classes, various races. It wouldn't have just been, you know, your, your best friend sort of thing. Paul is saying here to, to greet them all, to greet them all. Don't underestimate what your desire to greet others or lack thereof says about your heart and your relationship with Jesus. Greet those. Christian fellowship. It's one of the ways that we continue to build unity, even if we differ, even if we disagree. I'm coaching uh, my daughter's fourth grade bas- girls basketball team. And, and yesterday we had a practice, and we found out that we are the gold team. And after practice, I got the girls together, and I said, okay, we're the gold team. So on your schedules, we're the gold team, so look for the gold team. But I said, we need, we need something more than gold. We need, like... Like, we should be called, like, the, the gold dragons or, you know, something intimidating. And the very next suggestion that was given by one of those girls is the one that all the girls gleefully accepted. We are the golden girls. <laughs> you shake hands and you move on. But this sort of greeting, the, the high fives, the, the, the team camaraderie, that's, that kind of just continues to build that unity even when there's differences. Let's move on to our last one. 
Another way God shows his grace in the church is not just Christian growth where we should be pursuing godliness, not just Christian fellowship, the grace of the fellowship of the local church where we should pursue friendliness, praying for one another, greeting one another, accepting one another, but also Christian doctrine. Notice what he says in verse 27. He says, I put you under oath, strong words. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The Apostle Paul knew that this, that what he wrote in this letter, and the Greek word for letter is epistole, which is where we get our word epistle. Epistle means letter. Uh, Paul knew that, that, that the doctrines he wrote about, the things he wrote about, was so important that he put the church leaders under oath to read the entire letter to the whole congregation. At the end of Colossians, Paul charges them to, to, to send a letter over to Laodicea and to read another letter. Paul's just, Paul is making sure that everybody reads the important doctrines that he's beginning to write about that will eventually become part of the canon of Scripture. Because there's a danger here, and I think this is why he puts them under oath. Because there's a danger of picking and choosing what to preach. And he didn't want the, the leaders of this church to pick and choose the things they were going to say, the things they weren't going to say. Not that I think he was suspicious that they would, but he certainly wanted to make sure that what they read, that they, they read it all, and they read it to everybody. Paul wanted this letter read. He wanted to be exposed to all of it. And so I think, I look at myself and, and look at this pulpit and the, the, the pastors here, we look at this and say our obligation is to preach the whole word of God and not pick and choose the things we like or don't like or, or things we want to preach and not want to preach. We preach the whole counsel of God, which is why we pr- pick a, a book of the Bible or a portion of scripture and we preach right through it. That's not to say you can't do some, some, some sermons where you kind of you bounce around and kind of pick up on a theme of scripture. That's, that's acceptable, of course. But I think the, the, the natural understanding when it came to the word of God was that it was gone all the way through, spoken to all the people. Paul didn't say to read some parts to this person, hey, if you could read this section of the letter to that person or in this section of the letter to that family and this and that. No. The whole congregation got the whole letter. He didn't tell them to try to pick out what they thought would be beneficial and do away with the rest. And that's the same, same for us. I mean, it's, it's on you. If you're, if, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, it's on you that you be in the word of God. That you read the whole counsel of the word of God, even if you don't really understand it. Read with a study Bible with you. But you read through the whole counsel of God. But again, we call this a grace because this is the grace of God in making the scripture for all people. There's a time in the Roman Catholic Church where you were condemned if you were reading and and learning the word of God for yourself. You had to have a special license. But here's God's grace. It's for all people in all walks of life. And you want to know how we know that? It's because the Bible, one of the reasons is the Bible is compared to everyday things. Like Psalm 105, uh, where it talks about, the Psalm 119, 105, where it talks about the word of God being a lamp. The modern way of saying that would be a flashlight. It's like an everyday household item. Psalm says it's like a lamp. It lights our path. So that when we're walking, we don't, we don't stray from the path of godliness. So we don't stumble over sin. We can see where we're going and what we ought to be doing. James chapter 1 is compared to a mirror. Again, another everyday item. It helps us see ourselves and makes the right adjustments to live in obedience to God's standards. 
We are to delight in the word of God. And here's why I say delight. It's from Psalm chapter 1. Uh, the word of God is, is God's primary means of rescue. And, and uh, Psalm chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But what? His delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. The blessed man or woman is the man or woman who delights in God's law. His commands. None of us, none of us will delight in God's law unless we see that law as coming from a loving father as a means of rescue and help for us. As a means of rescue and help when it comes to our sexuality, our finances, our relationships, how we spend our time. It's like we delight in God's word because it's in the Bible that God is warning us of all the dangers that we'll face. And all the threats that are going to come to us within ourselves and without. Yet for many Christians, the word of God as a whole is something to be acknowledged but not really applied. Read but not remembered. Heard but not heeded. Owned but not operative. And many of us go through life listening to voices that have far more functional authority than the word of God. And if you see God's word as a grace, like God is trying to rescue me, then we'll delight in it. So those are the three ways that God, at least from this passage, three ways that God shows his, reveals his grace to the church. Through Christian growth, that sanctification, we need to be pursuing godliness in every area of our lives. Through Christian fellowship, and we should be pursuing friendliness. Being a friend means praying for each other. Being a friend means greeting each other. Those who are within the church and those who come from without the church. And one of the ways God shows his grace is by giving us Christian doctrine. We need to delight in the law of the Lord. And I've said a number of times in this sermon that if you're a follower of Jesus, and maybe you're not a follower of Jesus, maybe you don't know what it means to be a Christian, maybe you're not really sure what it means to grow, and, and on that graph that we showed, you know, that, that point in which you go up and enter into that Christian life, you're not sure how to get there or what it means, I'd love to talk to you about that. But you can know, and you can know even without talking to me, that God's word says that whoever believes in the Son has life. That he who believes has their sins forgiven and has everlasting life. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Because Jesus died for you and he rose again on the third day to make that available to you. So, let's enjoy the grace of God through Christian growth, Christian fellowship, and Christian doctrine. Pursuing godliness, pursuing friendliness, and pursuing delight. Let's close in prayer. Lord, I thank you for uh, these final words covered a lot this morning, but uh, just thank you, your, your grace is just so varied, so multitude, and there's so many different angles, even from what we talked about this morning. So God, I just pray very simply that you would help us to, uh, to bathe in the grace of Christian growth, Christian fellowship, and Christian doctrine, and Lord, may we pursue godliness, may we pursue friendliness, and Lord, may we pursue delight in your word. In Jesus' name, amen.